Welcome to Great Ideas. We're broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and today our show is about something called devolution. We'll explain what that is in a second, but it's really about something more profound. It's about the entire state of our country, the nastiness and anger in our politics and public discourse, and about whether we figure out a smarter way to work together, get more done, and lower the temperature. The Great Ideas Show is all about keeping an open mind, hearing from voices you might not usually listen to, and thinking a little deeper about the issues that confront us. That's definitely what we're going to try to do today. I'm not sure that everyone listening to this will be convinced. I'm not sure I'm convinced yet. I'm going to have to think about it, and you might too. And that's the whole point. To get our brains turning today, I've invited back a previous guest on this show, Brian Riedel. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute focusing on budget, tax, and economic policy. He worked for six years as chief economist to Senator Rob Portman, Republican of Ohio, and as staff director of the Senate Finance Subcommittee on Fiscal Responsibility and Economic Growth. He's also worked for the presidential campaigns of Marco Rubio and Mitt Romney. He's someone who thinks deeply about how we spend our money and more important, how we work together as a country to accomplish our shared goals. Brian, welcome back. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be here. It is a pleasure to have you. And we are responding in this show to a report that you just issued. And it explains what devolution is. It sounds like going from human being to Geico caveman. Let's let's dive into what that is. And Maybe you can maybe you can explain just at the top. What is devolution? Devolution and federalism sound like really boring topics out of your political science course when you were 19. So let me try to make it more interesting. The idea behind devolution is Washington right now is paralyzed in gridlock. They have been fighting it out for decades on issues like healthcare, welfare, transportation, education. And the answer is, why does Washington need to solve these problems in the first place when state and local governments can do it? The question is, did Vermont voters elect Bernie Sanders to the Senate so that he could impose his vision on Texas? Did Texas voters send Ted Cruz to the Senate so that he could bring conservative policies to Vermont? No. The question is, why don't we just let Texas be Texas and impose free market policies? If Vermont and Bernie Sanders want single-payer health care, why don't we let Vermont do single-payer health care? Instead, instead of conservatives worrying about Nancy Pelosi's San Francisco values and liberals worried about what Mitch McConnell's going to do to them, why not let California and Kentucky go their own way on a lot of these policies? That way, you break the paralysis, you break the gridlock, and we've had terrible gridlock over 30 years where the parties just fight it out with little progress. Why not let each state go their own way according to their own values? And the good thing about this too is the approaches that work will be replicated in other states and the approaches that don't work can be discarded quickly with only one state being hurt instead of 50. So to make sure we understand the basics of all of this, what you're getting at as a starting point, and like we teased at the top, and I think as you just suggested, we're going someplace deep and profound and interesting on this. But at the surface, this is about who controls the purse strings 
and who calls the shots when it comes to the big things that government does, transportation, education, healthcare, et cetera. So how currently, just to lay the groundwork, how currently does the federal government split responsibilities and funding with states and localities on let's say the, the four big examples that you just mentioned that you detail in your report? Right now, well, the story of the past hundred years has been the federal government taking over more and more. And for instance, one of the programs I look at is the federal highway program, which was created in the 1950s for the federal government to create an interstate network of highways. Very federal policy, interstate network. The interstate highway system was completed in the 1980s. Yet Washington, while they were originally supposed to give back power to the state, at this point, the national, I would say two thirds of all gas taxes are currently collected and spent by states. And the other one third is collected by Washington who serves as a middleman and gives it back to states. On education, we've had a big push since the 1980s federal of, of moving power from states to Washington. And this peaked with the 2001 No Child Left Behind Act, which was a bipartisan kind of federalization of public schools written by George Bush and Ted Kennedy. There's actually been some movement away from that in education right now. In, in 2015, No Child Left Behind was actually repealed and replaced because both parties moved, started to move away from federalization. Welfare is another policy that has moved heavily in, in the direction of, federal, of, of Washington running it with the one exception of what used to be the AFDC program was sent back to states in 1996 and replaced with the TANF program. But the anti-poverty system is still mostly run by state, right, by the federal government. And if we could just de-acronymize, acronymize? Did, did I just coin a term there? So aid to families with dependent <laughs> with children, dependent it's children. what we used to think of as welfare, basically. Yeah, AFDC was the first real big welfare program, aid to families with dependent children. It was originally a widow's pension program. It was actually created by FDR. And that was the main cash aid program to, to parents with children for 60 years. In 1996, it was controversially replaced with a new program called Temporary Assistance to Needy Families, which was more of a block grant to states that that had a more of a different approach of putting people to work and having time limits. Got it. Got it. So it sounds like overall, the picture you're painting is a steady progression from a more, we're going to confuse a lot of terms here, but a more federalist approach where the, the policy of the United States really was, we're a federation of states and we're going to coordinate and we're going to have some programs that are truly national in scope, but that'll be temporary to sort of a baseline situation where for a lot of these programs, there's a higher degree of federal control. Now, look, I can already hear our listeners through the radio, through the podcast on the other end. If you, if you come from a starting point of a more conservative or libertarian orientation, you're saying, well, this sounds bad. And if you're coming from a more progressive liberal orientation, you're saying, this sounds like not a bad thing at all. This is desirable. I can see why we would want national policy on education. Now, you're very clear in your report in saying that there are definitely needs that are national 
And there is definitely sort of a floor of, of policy guidance that it is right for the federal government to provide. So what are some examples of that? Where does it make sense, no, no matter where you fall on, on that orientation spectrum, what are some areas where it makes sense where you want the federal government to be setting the ground rules or taking a strong hand? I mean, defense, obviously, international relations, health and safety topics, the Federal Reserve, broad economic stabilization. There's a case for Washington to take the lead on things like disaster relief, when, when that's something like that overwhelms the state. NASA. Also, anything where there's huge externalities between states. Pollution laws can have huge, huge externalities where one state might kind of blow its pollution into another state. You, for, for, for those sorts of environmental laws, I think you, you need a big federal federal government, broad national public goods like that. I, I, you know, and, and also, you key point, you need the federal government to always enforce constitutional and civil rights. And I think there's a lot of people who associate federalism and states' rights with slavery and and blocking civil rights. And 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 their right to, to be concerned with that. That was that was the biggest blight of states' rights in the past. What we're talking about now is more economic and within the framework that the federal government obviously should endorse, should, should enforce all constitutional rights, all civil rights, and even in programs run by the state, the federal, federal government, especially when they're supplying funding, has an interest in making sure that any federal funding is spent actually on the topic it's supposed to, that there's minimum standards, that there aren't what's called races to the bottom. You know, this isn't, this isn't a total libertarian get Washington out of the way, but what it is saying is things like, why is Washington deciding what intersections to put a streetlight in in Appleton, Wisconsin? You know, per perhaps that's a little too much micromanagement. I'll also say for a lot of liberals who are concerned about, about this and who like the federal government, do you really want Ted Cruz and Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell telling your state what to do? You know, in 2017, 44% of California Democrats endorsed Cal Exit, basically an idea that of, of, of leaving the United States because they don't want Donald Trump telling them what to do. I think if you're on the left, let California be California. You shouldn't have to be subject to Donald Trump or Mitch McConnell. Let Vermont do single payer health care. There's a lot of Republicans who run the government not, not particularly well and according to liberal values. I think liberals should welcome the flexibility to go their own way, just like conservatives. I think what's interesting, and I'll just draw a, a, a little bit of a connection here. One of the biggest current debates in Washington among like, you know, wonks and nerds, which we're proudly members of that set, is about the filibuster. It's about the idea that Democrats, liberals say, look, we've got a situation where because of the way senators are elected state by state and because right now the Republican Party tends to represent states with lower population density, you have a situation where Democrats who have 50 seats and Republicans who have 50 seats represent very different numbers of Americans. And that means, especially vis-a-vis -vis the filibuster, that you have these really complicated situations where you're determining national policy based on a minority representation in the US Senate. Big fight, we're not gonna resolve that in this show today, but it sounds like part of what you're saying is, let's, to the maximum extent possible, not have that fight. Sure, 
we definitely, definitely need to make sure that civil rights are enforced, that the constitution is enforced, that minimum standards where there's a national interest involved are enforced. But if we can avoid fights over economic policy, education policy, transportation policy, that seems like kind of a win. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I mean, to me, this is, you know, in economics, we, we see this as, as a win-win. You know, in, in economics, you talk a lot about individual choice. Why does everyone have to do the same thing? Why not let each individual choose? And one of the important cases for um, state and local control is we've had a massive degree of, of geographic partisan sorting. We have, we have hard red states that vote Republican every presidential election, that send only Republicans to the Senate and Congress. We have deep blue states that are an overwhelmingly liberal. We have 80 per, 80% of all counties right now are called landslide counties. A landslide county means that in presidential elections, you always go with a 20-point win for the Republicans, or at least a 20-point win for the Democrats, 80%. The parties are becoming more extreme, and the states are becoming more politically homogenous. If that's the case, why do you need the same policy for every state? Why, why does Vermont and Texas need the same education policy? Why do they need the same healthcare policy? If we have deep blue and deep red, there's really no reason they have to do the same. I think it just makes more sense to say, we don't need a one size fits all policy. Let the states go their own way instead of having them fight to the death in Washington over how to impose their vision on each other. I'll also just add for some who say, well, you know, states are too small to be able to do big things like this. I, I, there's a part of my report where I compare each state to a European country. You know, if, if states were countries, California would be the fourth biggest economy in the world. Texas would be the ninth biggest economy. New York would be the 11th biggest economy. My state of Virginia is the same size, same economy as Poland. Montana matches Serbia. The smallest economy, Vermont, is the same size as Estonia and Latvia. We don't have Europe impose a one-size-fits-all healthcare program on everyone. We don't have the EU in Brussels deciding payment rates for kidney dialysis in Turkey and where to put a streetlight in Lisbon, Portugal. So in, in, why in, in, in America do we need to have the federal government making that decision for a huge 3,000-mile-wide country with 330 million Americans? There, you don't need that. Well, and I would point out, not to make your case for you, but th there are copious examples of interstate collaboration where small states band together, sometimes with large states. For example, the Reggie program in the Northeast on carbon abatement, which has been pretty successful and is an interstate compact. States are free to do that kind of thing. But this is me inserting myself into your argument. Before we get to your great idea, which we've pretty well previewed at this point. Mm -hmm. What are the best arguments? What, what's sort of the best counter argument or not even a counter, but what's the most robust argument for a muscular role for the federal government on policy? What does that sound like? The, the counter arguments I hear, I'll, I'll, there are some bad ones, but I'll start with the, the good ones are some people say, that states don't have the financial resources to do all of this because the federal government can borrow money and states usually don't. And so 
you know, during a recession, et cetera, the federal government can, 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 can throw a lot more money around than states. My response to that is, A, there's nothing stopping states from borrowing money during recessions other than the fact that they don't want to. There's, there's no constitutional restraint. That's a policy choice. I would also say the federal government can still supply funding for certain programs. There's also an argument, you know, race to the bottom, incompetent states. You know, I mean, states like Mississippi runs into a lot of problems with the federal government, like for welfare programs. They were caught basically rejecting 99% of all welfare applicants. You absolutely need federal standards to make sure that if you're going to give states control over your welfare program, there are minimum standards that have to be held. So I do think there is a legitimate case to deal with that. You know, there's, you know, corruption in Illinois. There's, you know, again, Mississippi sometimes. And, and, and you're right, there, there are, you, need, you do need interstate coordination. If you are going to expand an interstate highway between two states, there does have to be a degree of coordination. I don't believe Washington has to micromanage and finance every, every pouring of pavement, but you do have to have some sort of process where you coordinate. So I, I will say the worst argument that I hear is, the, which is the most common, is the ideologue argument, which is, I want to impose my policy view from sea to shining sea. You know, my policy views are right and their policy views are wrong. And I cannot bear the idea of letting those states impose such bad policies on their people. Part of the challenge is if you're going to, if you want the freedom to do your state your way, you have to give the other state freedom to make what you think are mistakes. And you got to have the confidence that yours is going to succeed, theirs will fail, and eventually yours will be replicated. But the most common argument I hear is the ideological, I can't bear to have any states implementing policies I don't like, even if I don't live there. Brian, I think you started to lay out what I really think is the great idea here. What you're identifying is something, something really profound about where we are. And I'm going to read you a section of your report, which you just released, which you call Devolution for Proposals to Empower States and Reduce Washington's Political Strife. The key being the last part of that title. And what you wrote in the executive summary is, populist rage over Washington's healthcare debates caused control of Congress to flip in 1994 and again between 2010 and 2014. Yet this 30 year war resulted in just two major transformational health reforms, the 2003 creation of the Medicare Prescription Drug Benefit and the 2010 Affordable Care Act, the ACA. The ACA saw a disastrous rollout and a push to repeal the law dominated domestic politics for the next decade. Much of the 2020 presidential primary debate was riven by an intra-party war over whether to support Medicare for all, which has no chance whatsoever of congressional passage anytime soon. So Brian, I am leading you to something you've basically already said, but it sure sounds to me like your great idea is to say, look, we've got enough fights in this country. We've reached really a disastrous point in our politics and our public discourse. So why don't we agree? Yeah, we're gonna disagree about something, but can we maybe just go our own way a little bit more, take the temperature down, stop disagreeing so much, on as many policies as we can. Did I read that back to you right? How do you think about it? Yeah, I think 
Right now, I mean, I, I worked in Washington for 20 years. I worked in the Senate. And one of the frustrating things is you, these perennial wars on issues where no progress is ever made. I mean, Washington has been at war on health care for 30 years. The two parties have wildly different divergent views on health care, ways that can't be merged into a, into a consensus pact. They, they, they want to go completely opposite directions. And you just watch them fighting and spending billions of dollars, all hoping to get to the point where one day they can completely crush the other side to such a degree that they can redesign the entire U.S. national healthcare system themselves. I don't want to spend 30 more years watching that fight happen where they fight to a draw for 30 years, where Congress keeps flipping. It just seems like we're not solving problems. We're trying to dominate and destroy each other. And so what I come back to is, again, if Bernie Sanders really believes in Medicare for all and his constituents believe in Medicare for all, go for it. Do it in Vermont. Knock yourselves out. The federal government should do whatever it takes. Take all your federal funding for health care, block grant it, make regulatory reforms to the ERISA laws for employer-based health care. Whatever you need to do, go for it. And if, if a conservative state wants to do the opposite, go for it. And again, the cool thing about this is if you really believe your healthcare plan will work, now is your chance to shine. This is your chance to show the world that it's going to work. And over time, if it's great, it'll get replicated. I just don't want to see 30 more years of brawling costing billions of dollars that results in nothing because the other side ain't going away. You know, you're not going to destroy the other side, have them go away and get the entire field to yourself. It's not going to happen. In your report, you outline four key areas, transportation, K through 12 education, welfare, and healthcare, where you think we could accomplish this. And again, the caveat here is you're not saying on everything. You're not saying everywhere. One example is we're not going to solve the fight on voting rights, for example, through devolution and letting every state go its own way. Neither party is going to let that one go. But you think that there is a legitimate case to be made in some of the key areas where we're having needless fights and we could let a thousand flowers bloom and be more productive and maybe even have a race to the top of different approaches. So can you walk us through what would that look like in an area like transportation or education what is what what's that what's that movie look like transportation is the most straightforward uh, there's already been proposals in congress to do this for 30 years the basic idea in transportation is we created the interstate highway system in the 50s or the interstate highway program to spend 25 years building a 40,000 mile network of interstates and the idea was as soon as that's completed the federal program would end and we would let states control everything. Well, it ended and they, the federal government just liked the power. They liked distributing money. The reality is states already collect an average of 36 cents per gallon gas tax and spend $130 billion on, on their own highway and road needs. The feds collected 18 cents per gallon gas tax and then just send the money right back to the states with all these strings attached. My thought is, well, if states are already collecting two thirds of all the national highway spending and road spending themselves within the state, why do we need Washington to do the other third? 
especially when they're going to micromanage the states like states don't know how to build up build a road or or, or put up a street light and so what i proposed is you lower the federal gas tax down from 18 cents to three cents per gallon. Why three cents? Because you still have federal lands. You have a lot of uh, Native American reservations. You wanna fund certain federal safety programs. You cut the federal gas tax to three cents. And then you have each state raise their gas tax 15 cents, you know, which is the size of the federal drop. And then you just essentially just cut out the federal middleman. Now. You, you, you have to make sure states as part of this deal will maintain their interstates. They're not gonna, and I, and I think that that's not hard. I don't think there are states that are really just dying to let their interstates completely fall apart. I think that you have to trust local voters a little bit more than that, but you require that states maintain their highways and you also create a federal coordination office. If you're gonna have interstate projects, if you're gonna build a new interstate highway connecting three states, of course you have to coordinate that. But that's so different from the federal government deciding where to put a stop sign. <laughs> you don't need that. So this is a really straightforward proposal that's actually been around for about 30 years. The problem is members of the Congress really like power and they really like ribbon cutting ceremonies and they really like handing out money and they don't wanna give states that freedom. Let me provide a little bit of the devil's advocate argument here. And see what you make of it. You alluded earlier to the idea of externalities, which is a big highfalutin economics word for basically saying, look, when you buy something and sell something, normally there's one buyer and one seller. And you know the price basically sends a signal. This is how much this is worth. I buy it, I get all the benefit, you sell it, you get all the money. But sometimes there are externalities. There are things that are external to that transaction that affect how much value is flying around. The classic example that you, you mentioned is pollution. Sometimes there's pollution that's affecting other people outside the transaction. And if they don't have that price signal, that cost as part of their transaction, they have no idea that really the value of what's being created in that transaction is, is off. Transportation is one of those areas where there are externalities. There are more benefits that you get if you, you live in Virginia. If you're a Maryland driver, you get benefits from Virginia's, the quality of Virginia's transportation system, but you may not pay to get those benefits. And it's exactly in these kinds of situations where government coordination to fix that market is supposed to, in economic theory, step in. So what do you make of that argument when it comes to transportation, but also some of these other areas? You could say the same thing about education. There is a national interest that's served when we have a broadly, highly educated K through 12 population. In healthcare, same thing. We have a, a, a global pandemic right now. And so we are only as strong as our weakest vaccination and public health link. What do you make of that kind of argument in all four of these areas? I think we have to respect state voters. You know, I, I live in Virginia and you're right. If Virginia has good roads, that doesn't just benefit Virginians, it benefits Marylanders who are, who are coming through. 
but that's not a reason that Virginians would want bad roads. The vast majority of the benefits still accrue to the people who are local who live there. You know, there's there's no reason someone from Virginia should say just because Maryland drives on our road too, I want potholes. I want traffic congestion. I, I want I want to get backed up, lost on the highway because Marylanders drive through here too. too. I, I think you have an incentive. The same thing with schools. Every state, every every family, every state understands the value of schools. And when people say, well, you need Washington, Washington consists of the voters of 50 states who already all agree that they value something. They're just doing it through Washington instead of themselves. It's the same people. Healthcare. I, I, I guess I have more trust that states recognize I want my state to have a functional healthcare system that benefits me. I don't think it's a matter of, well, I would like a bad healthcare system, but the, the bureaucrats in Washington want me to be healthy kind of thing. I, I think we all have that incentive ourselves. That being said, you still, of course, need to have minimum federal standards, the just-in-case federal standards. If the, if the federal government is going to give states money for anti-poverty programs, they damn well better spend it. They better be minimum standards, minimum benefit levels, minimum eligibility levels, because there are cases where a state government, like say in, well, in a welfare program, will say, well, a minority of our state is on welfare and the, and the majority are not. So we could take our federal welfare dollars and put them into something that benefits the 80% and doesn't benefit the vulnerable 10 or 20%. There are instances like that where it's, it's only a small minority in the state who are getting the benefits. That's where, of course, the federal government has to say, you will spend your welfare programs on a system that achieves a minimum level of benefits and eligibility. That is perfectly within the federal government's uh, responsibility. What about federal agencies and federal programs in agriculture, where you're dealing with commodities that really that, that have economics that cross state lines, frankly, that cross national lines? Is it, is it possible to extend the model that you're suggesting here broadly throughout the things that the federal government does. Where does the devolution model begin to run up against too much national interest or too much national and e international economics to make as much sense? As, well, it's funny you mentioned farm subsidies. I didn't put them in this report because I have written at length that we should just simply eliminate farm subsidies completely. I think it's actually, I think, one of the most wasteful, unnecessary things Washington does is farm subsidies. I think the provision of social services, I think, can generally be done for the most part at the state level. I think regional economic policies, I think the minimum wage, I, I, I trust states on policies like the minimum wage. I do think if you're doing macroeconomic stabilization, if you're doing the Federal Reserve, anytime you're dealing with major redistribution of resources between states, like when there's a hurricane or something like that, that's, I think, when you, the federal government can jump in. Additionally, you know, again, I'll, I'll say things, NASA, international relations, defense, it can't work. But when you're talking about social services, housing, urban policy, anti-poverty programs, community development, healthcare, education, again, other, other social services, job training. I don't necessarily see why you need one size fits all on what are essentially local issues that don't 
don't have as much of a spillover effect that 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 conflicts with the local interest. What about some of the economies of scale arguments? There's again kind of digging into some economics weeds, but most people are familiar with the idea that when you achieve bigger scale, things cost less. There's there's an old joke, it's actually a Bill Cosby joke about someone seeing a sign in a diner offering one egg, any style, $1.39, two eggs, any style, $1.89. And the question being, well, what's wrong with the second egg? The answer is economies of scale. If you're buying more, the price gets lower. And you frequently hear this kind of thing in healthcare, either that the federal government has the scale to negotiate lower prices, or you don't have enough liquidity and pooling in small state markets to achieve the best benefits for the residents. What do you, and then of course, of course, you have issues in healthcare of the economics of, of how things cross state lines, especially when it comes to transmissible illnesses. So what do you make of the federal role because of those kinds of economics in healthcare? I think it means a good question. I think in healthcare, we already have a lot of state by state regulation. We have a lot of healthcare markets that have state borders. In fact, one of, one of the things you know, that, uh, that's been a big issue over the last 20, 30 years is a lot of conservatives wanting to make it easier to buy healthcare across state lines. I, I think healthcare markets are big enough within a state to function. I mean, again, America, there are American states whose economies are bigger than European countries. If Poland can have its own healthcare system, then so can Virginia. I, I think if, if Australia is big enough to have its own healthcare market, so is California. I, I, just, I don't think states are so small that there isn't enough size to have a functioning market. You know, and I do think in things like public health, of course, I, I think states have an incentive to keep their population healthy. At the national level, you can still have a CDC, you can still have an NIH. My, my wife works at the NIH. I, if, I, if I said shut that down, I think I'd be sleeping on the couch. You can still have an FDA, you can still focus on that. But at the state level, I, I, I think the markets are big enough. And it's the same thing with, with education, with anti-poverty. Our, like I said, our state economies are bigger than, than, than most country economies. They're, I think they're big enough. Now, if we were talking about the county level, that would be very different. States are big. I want to ask you about an area that you just alluded to in terms of the prospect that you might end up in the doghouse and sleep on the couch, which is not just health, but science. Now, listeners to this show know that I have a little bit of a, a personal axe to grind in terms of my deep-seated belief in the long-term economic and, and societal value of federal support for scientific research and development. The examples in the literature is pretty vast, supporting the economic return and the societal return from investment in basic R&D that only the federal government can produce at this kind of scale. And that again, because of externalities, because of these weird economic effects, really doesn't happen from the private sector at the optimal level. I mean, if for no other reason, then the benefits are so uncertain and they tend to cross not only state lines, but they, they tend to fall to people who are very, very different than the people doing the original basic mm -hmm. research. You've already alluded to NASA, NIH, 
where do you come down on these kinds of programs, this kind of funding? Do you think that that is an appropriate role for the federal government to take the lead on? Absolutely. I mean, National Science Foundation, absolutely. Because the, the, the point of basic research is you're creating something really for the whole country or for humanity. Why would California, for instance, decide to make major investments in basic research when they're only going to get, when, 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 when it's going to be a 50 states benefit, why should California pay the full cost for this investment? Why should my home state of Wisconsin pay the full cost of that investment when there's going to be 50 states benefiting? Every state's going to decide to free ride off everybody else because all 50 states are going to benefit equally from the research. So I think when you're talking about basic research, that's one thing where the spillover effects are so huge that there's really no incentive for one state to eat all the costs if they're only going to get 2% of, of the national value. I think it's different when we're talking about what I would call corporate welfare, which is a lot of the programs that are more economic development study, or economic development assistance, commercialization of, pro of, of, of existing products, where you know, you're really just kind of trying to create jobs and, and, and build a plant somewhere else to create, you know, to, to, to create jobs or bring a product to the market that's already been invented. That's a little more about local economic development than than building something scientific where, again, why should my state pay 100% of the cost if we're only going to get 2% of the national benefit? Right, right. And in these other cases, you're really robbing Peter to pay Paul. Wisconsin's benefit is Michigan's loss or what have you. Right, right. So let me ask about the benefit of your approach, because what I'm gathering is that from a purely economic standpoint, what you would argue is you could have some greater efficiency by letting, you, you're using free market here in a kind of air quote sense. I'm air quoting. People on the radio can't see that. You're using- He is air quoting. Let me I am air quoting. I can <laughs> see the air quotes. You're using the free market in a, in a kind of uh, non-literal sense here. What you're saying is, let the states try different approaches and they may find their own optimal approaches and that's going to be more economically efficient. But I'm gathering that what you're arguing is that the benefit isn't really economic. The benefit is political and cultural, that the biggest thing that your plan would deliver is in the politics sphere where we're, where we're so stuck. I mean, the, 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 the benefit here is most people will get what they want. I mean, right now, nobody's getting what they want from federal health care policy because neither side is winning. Neither side is getting, is, is getting their, their views implemented. But if you have 80% of people in one state want single payer and 80% of the people in another state want a more free market health care system, there is a way in which 80% of the people in both states can be happy. You know, even setting aside the fact that over time you get to see what works and what doesn't and everyone replicates it, you create a situation where most people in most states can, can, can get the policy they want. You just, there's no reason to standardize one size fits all between these states. You know, I, and I think it'll just be more harmonious. You kind of, you, 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 you break the, the, the powder keg and let, let the steam out and let everyone try their own approach. And again, in terms of, you know, harmony, 
aren't there people in California who would love to not have to worry about Mitch McConnell and Ted Cruz? Aren't, you know, aren't there people in the South who would love not to worry about Bernie Sanders and Nancy Pelosi to just say, look, my governor has his own great vision for our state and he's going to, he is, he or she is going to rep, is going to do exactly the vision we want. If we're California and we want to create all these big ambitious policies, let Governor Newsom do it and let's all be happy. Could there be downside risks from the standpoint of one of the biggest trends of the last 40 years is the way we've sorted ourselves as a country, maybe not fully intentionally, but we've sorted ourselves into partisan enclaves, rural and urban, often racial, and certainly by party. If we start having states go off in very different directions economically in terms of healthcare and social services, is it possible that that will only accelerate that kind of sorting and only accelerate the degree of division amongst the states? It may to a certain degree. I mean, if you're if you, if you're a conservative living in Vermont, you may want to get the hell out. <laughs> you know, if you're if you're if you're a socialist living in in Alabama, you may you may want to run screaming. But you know, look, it's impossible to give a hundred percent of the population the exact system of government they want. Right now, we're giving zero percent what they want because it's gridlock and nobody's getting anything. I think going from zero to seventy percent is really good progress. The only way to get to 100% is for the last 30% to all pack up and move to different states, which, you know, might happen gradually. I would hope not to see a mass migration, but you're right. I mean, you are going to see a little more differences. I think you're going to, you're going to kind of see a little more division between different states of different approaches and different states are going to have even stronger personalities to them. But you know, I, I don't know if that's necessarily a worse thing than the status quo, where instead both sides feel that the other state is trying to impose on them. I think you can just say, well, the people in that state, they have their system and they're nuts, but it ain't hurting me. Right now, it's the people in those states are electing people to Washington who are trying to take away the system I want from my state. That's worse. At the top of the show, I said that I wasn't necessarily fully convinced by this idea. But it was making me think. And as we wrap up here, I want to share my hope that everyone listening is going to think about this a little bit. I know for me, I'm going to be thinking about what kind of cherished policies that I've long thought of as federal, maybe could we benefit from having them a little bit more distributed? And I hope people who have a different orientation will think, you know, what are the kinds of standards and shared collective values we want to absolutely make sure we decide on as a nation. Brian Riedel, thanks so much for sharing your great idea with us. 